Good afternoon. Welcome to week number 15 of our summer series about the gospel according to Jesus. Uh, we are now in the very last part of that. I've got about three more weeks to go, and we'll finish up with this series. But today we'll be talking about uh, uh, the way of salvation. As Jesus explains his, the, uh, the gospel, uh, again, the, the subject today is going to be about the way of salvation. Uh, before we do that, let me go ahead and open with prayer and we'll get to it. Uh, Father, your word tells us that we are to admonish and to urge that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be offered for all men. And so today, we, as we study the way of salvation that has been laid out for all believers, uh, we bring the lost of the world, every man, woman, and child from uh, here unto every corner of the world before you. And Father, we ask that the Lord of the harvest uh, would provide a perfect laborers across their, these, these lives this day uh, to share the good news of the gospel in a very special way so that they would listen and understand it. And we know, Father, that those who belong to you will not be able to resist the call of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray that they might be brought to repentance by your goodness and your love. And these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. You know, one of the uh, talking about salvation, again, which is our subject for today, one of the questions I'm sure that most people have, have if they haven't been asked directly, they perhaps even have asked the question themselves of other people, or certainly have heard the question uh, contextualized in a number of different ways, but the question is, are you saved? Now, for those who have been, perhaps those that have grown up in the church, or those who have been around the church for a long time, or, or perhaps have been going to church, uh, most are very quick to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, I've, I've been saved. Uh, because I, I, I think most of us, especially those of us who associate ourselves with, with the church and the body of Christ, uh, we want people to know unequivocally that we are in fact, have a, that we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and that uh, we are saved. Uh, I was reading a, a thing this week by a, a gentleman by the name of Arthur Pink. Arthur Pink was one of those, one of those marvelous people. Uh, he, was a, he was a minister of the Word uh, during the 20th century, primarily the 20th century. He was born in England in the late 1880s, uh, studied at the Moody Bible Institute for only six weeks before he actually started his ministry. Uh, he ministered in a number of different places around the world, uh, all over the United States as well as Australia, finally wound up back in England and then in Scotland. But Arthur Pink never was a great preacher, quote-unquote, uh, by the world's standards. Uh, but he was a man of God. And uh, he did not become known, really, until after his death in 18, I mean, in, in 1952. Uh, the, someone got a hold of all of his writings uh, about the Word, uh, which were principally about uh, grace and justification and sanctification. Uh, and they published his work, and so he, he really gained his notoriety or his fame after his death. But one of the things that, that Arthur Pink said that I picked up this week in a quotation that pertained to what we're talking about, especially this question, are you saved? 
Arthur Pink said that there are some who would say they are saved before they have any feeling or sense that they're really lost. And I, th- I think that that, is, that that sort of speaks to, in a, um, a very specific way, about where we are, perhaps, in the church today. Uh, you know, we, we've talked a good bit this, during the summer series about easy believism. Uh, people who think that uh, all they have to do in order to be a believer, or all they have to do in order to be saved, is to say a little sinner's prayer. Uh, that's that's what we they've they've been told to do. They've heard uh, that's what they need to do in order to be saved, and so they do that. They say a little sinner's prayer. Uh, they they have perhaps a, an emotional experience, and then they move on from that. And whether their lives ever change or not um, is is uh, is a question only they can determine they and of course God but but the fact is is that all of us there God has a purpose for everyone in this world especially those that belong to him one of the things that that uh, Proverbs 19 21 says that many are the plans of a man it, that are in a man's heart but it's only the plan of God that will actually come to fruition or come true or as, as the the NIV says prevail It's only God's plan that will ultimately prevail. Now, when we talk about God's plan, of course, God has a plan for for every aspect of the universe. But for man specifically, his plan is is that we we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. We've we've heard that at Romans 8, 29 many times because of the word predestined. But that's, that's what the Word tells us, that, that, that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who belong to God, who are predestined by God, not only to believe but also to, to persevere in that belief, that His, His purpose for those people are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And specifically what that means is that we're to think like Jesus. Philippians 2.5 tells us that we have to have the mind of Christ. Colossians 3.15, 17 let me read that one because I can't remember all three verses. Third chapter of the 15th verse says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we are to, we are to feel like Jesus, and these are the feelings that, that we are to incorporate us in us. Third thing that we're to do as a part of God's plan for us in being conformed to the image of Christ is to act like Jesus. Luke 6 is a, is a wonderful uh, uh, book and chapter in order to get a sense of what that looks like. Uh, there's too many verses there for me to read them all, but I would just refer you to Luke 6, starting at verse 27 and going through uh, verse 49, which is the end of that sixth chapter there. But it tells you about it. I'm sure all of you have read that before, and it's the kind of thing that when you read it, uh, you, you, can, you just realize more and more, every verse that you read, how far short we fall of being or acting like Christ. Uh, 
1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 probably is, it's certainly is a little shorter. Let me read those two verse, or, verses for you uh, because it sort of summarizes acting like Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, he says, Do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So all those things who have, uh, people who have those non-Christ-like characteristics and certainly behaviors are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, the method that, Jesus, that, that God chose in order to get us to, to begin to understand what, it's, uh, what He means to, when he's, to think like Jesus, what He means to feel like Jesus, or what He means to act like Jesus, as the Word says, is that, that, uh, that He used the foolishness of preaching to accomplish His purpose in man. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 and 24. Verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jew, which is to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So that that's the that's the methodology by which we are are to understand, to learn, and to understand what it is to think like Jesus, to feel like Jesus, or to act like Jesus. Now preaching. Uh, the, the, the word preaching as it's used in the Greek means to herald the word, to shout out the word. Now, there are, I, I'm sure many of you have heard lots of sermons in your, in your, uh, in your time. Uh, but the Bible tells us that expository preaching as a style, as a, as a form of preaching, expository preaching is, is what is biblically mandated in terms of the form. And expository preaching is, is about de- providing a detailed meaning of a particular scripture verse or a particular uh, chapter or, or uh, uh, part of scripture that you're looking at. Now, it's detailed, again, giving a, a complete understanding of what this verse means. Um, and, 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 I, and, I, and I know all preachers know this, and, and certainly all teachers know this too, or should. Uh, it wasn't too long ago I heard, I watched a video on YouTube about a preacher who is in, uh, gosh, I can't think of the name of churches, but one of those crazy churches up in, I think, in the, in the Northeast, maybe it's New York. The guy's name, and the, the name may, hit a, may ring a bell with you, his name is Steve Furtick, F-U-R-T-I-C-K, Steve Furtick. I'm not, I'm, again, I cannot think right offhand. I, I knew it before I came. But, but, but Steve Furtick was standing in front of his, this group of mostly very young people, and uh, I, I guess he was preaching about the understanding of Scriptures. And he said, uh, quite blatantly, the Scripture says what I say it says. 
Uh, and of course, I don't, I don't think anybody, I think perhaps the people in the audience may have, have clapped or yelled or whatever uh, in, in agreement with him. But no, the, 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 the scripture does not say what Steve Furtick says it says. The scripture says what the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit reveals to us that it says. So ex, exegetical, uh, ex, exegetical preaching is, a, is just in a different time. To exegete the word is to give more of a technical and grammatical ex, exposition of what's being you know, talking about. Um, different forms of speech and things which were common in that particular time and so forth. So it's a it's a much more detailed. Expository is detailed. Ex- exegetical is a more technical and grammatical exposition of the Word of God. So, but those that's the the methodology by which we are to preach and teach the Word. Now, after the Word is preached, what is the responsibility that God has for? Man, of course, each person must decide to accept or not accept the truth of what he has heard in terms of the truth of the Word. I, this, this, that earlier question that I, that I asked there, are you saved? Uh, I, I doubt anybody when they look at it, I, well, perhaps that's, that's not giving people enough credit. But when you look at that question, are you saved? Very few people, when the first time they hear that question or the first time they see that question, do they think, well, you know, there's no way I can answer that question right offhand. Because, because most people, a lot of people would recognize that that's a process question. And what a process question does is try to get to, to, to understand what your level of understanding is about the material or, or the question or the, or the subject that's being asked about. I think most of us understand now, most of us who have been in the faith for, for a while, uh, that uh, who are, have been walking in this walk of sanctification for a period of time, understand that there's, there's a heck of a lot more to are you, being, are you saved than just saying, yes, I am. Because it is not a momentary, it's a once in a sort of a once in a lifetime verdict that you make that has unbelievable implications and consequences for the person who is answering the question. And if you, if you haven't walked that walk, or if you haven't understood what the Word says about having to, how to think like Jesus, feel like Jesus, and act like Jesus, there's no way that you can answer that question in an unequivocal way. Yes, I'm saved. Well, the, the, the fact is, is that you will ask your own self that as you walk the walk, and as you try to think like Jesus and feel like Jesus and act like Jesus, there will be many times during that walk that you will question yourself as to whether you are in fact saved or not. And there's not anything necessarily bad about that because we're constantly, or, or should be anyway, constantly going through the process of self-examination. As a matter of fact, the Word tells us to do that, to constantly self-examine ourselves to see if in fact we are thinking and feeling and acting like Jesus. Many of you will remember, I, guess, I don't know how long ago it was, when the, when the rage was the what would Jesus do bracelets. Uh, I'm not much into bumper sticker or wristband wearing evangelism, but it, but it makes a good point. What would Jesus do? And that, of course, is one of the things is that we're, in, we're, we're encouraged or we're obligated to do is to try to understand how Jesus would think. 
I know that that when when uh, our, our our elders and, and our deacons are uh, when they're elected to office, they always are in are, are are told that they are to 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 deliberate and to cast ballots and uh, for what's going on in, as far as the life of the church in the mind of God, using the mind of Christ as they do that. So they're supposed to be thinking and feeling and acting like Jesus would do. All right, there. It, it's no saying that you are saved. It's not a momentary decision. It's a one, once and for all verdict. And it has ongoing implications and consequences far more than just saying, yes, I am, or no, I'm not. Uh, probably the best in Matthew seven nineteen. This is the at the this is a question that Jesus or or, or or actually it's not a question it's a sort of an ultimatum that Jesus gave after the Sermon on the Mount. It it might even equate to what we now would would refer to and perhaps if you've ever been attended to a Baptist church or even a church I, I don't know all denominations what sort of form that they use but but many do use something that's called an altar call and after the word has been preached and there has been a song that has been sang uh, then then uh, the pastor will or, or while the congregation is singing the final song the pastor will issue an altar call. And of course, the altar call is, is just the pastor asking those in the congregation to pray and to listen to the concerns of their heart or the convictions of their heart in terms of their own status before God. And if, in fact, they feel like that they need to be saved, they're to step out in the aisle, walk down to the altar, and see meet with someone who's there, and either an elder or a deacon or perhaps even the pastor or, or someone else in the church to, to talk about the fact that they uh, feel convicted of their sins and they want to stop the life that they're living. They want to repent, turn their life around, and live like Jesus. So here, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is issuing something that is akin to an altar call. In the 13th verse of the 7th chapter, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, some say, well, I've never heard an altar call like that. Well, you weren't at the Sermon on the Mount. But that is essentially what he's doing there. Jesus is issuing a call and says, you know, you've, you've heard the word preached. You, you have heard the things that uh, uh, my expectations in terms of righteousness. Uh, hopefully you've been convicted by that. If not, then you need to understand that you need to Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the, the gate, etc., etc. So, he's telling those who have, who have been there that there is a right gate over in John 9.10. Let me read that one because that's a good verse too. Um, John 10.9, not 9.10, but 10.9. He says, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So he's, he's telling those people there in John is that not only is there, is it, there a right gate, but that gate must be through him. We cannot get to where we want to be, i.e. eternal life or the kingdom of God, through any other gate than that is through Christ Jesus. The wrong gate, of course, is that broad gate he talks about there. 
And that wrong gate is any other option that you may choose. Any other way that you think that you can get to to the kingdom of God or get to heaven or get through uh, life into an eternal life by any other gate other than Jesus, you've chosen the wrong gate. There's There's no ifs and ands. There's no alternatives. There's no possibilities. There is none whatsoever. Any gate other than Christ is the wrong gate. Acts 4.12 tells us that. In Acts 4.12, it says, Nor is there salvation in any other... For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's talking about the name of Jesus. No other name under in heaven by which we might be saved. So any gate that, that has a name above it other than that of Jesus Christ is the wrong gate. And you need to turn around. Two ways to get to heaven. One of them is the easy way. The other is the hard way. Uh, the easy way, of course, doesn't require any, any particular skills. The easy way is doing what comes naturally to us. The easy way is one that doesn't require uh, any particular uh, principles. Uh, there's plenty of attitude in the easy way. Uh, hardly any limitations. There are no curbs. There are no boundaries. And there's no danger signs. Uh, there's tolerant, tolerance about every conceivable sin that you might want to commit. It re- requires no, no character on your part. So the easy way is, in fact, as it indicates, it's very easy. And the other thing is, is that because of the way in which Satan works in our lives, it also has the same sign above it as the hard way. And that is, this road leads to heaven. There are many people today uh, who are supposedly preachers of the gospel, who, who preach a gospel very much like the easy way that tells you all you have to do is the easy thing, i.e. say that you, you repent and that you believe now, you believe in Jesus, and that's all you have to do. Uh, contraire. Luke 14, 25 through 27, tell, begins to tell us how hard it is. In 25 he says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's hard. There are a lot of people, and of course, as the Word says, there are many people who were following Him who said, oh, okay, I'm out, and they went and walked the other way. Back over in the, 20, in the 13th, uh, 13th chapter, as Jesus was preaching, and He was telling about all the difficulty it was, there, there would be um, involved in being His disciple. And as, as people were following him around, and, and uh, out of, mostly out of curiosity as opposed to, and, and for what they could get, uh, it, was, it was some entertainment, if you will. And so then, of course, Jesus began to, uh, to speak very harshly 
uh, to them in terms of uh, their behavior. And of course, he went on to establish his, his expectations or the expectations of the kingdom of God with regard to righteousness. And then one of his disciples, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That, that, that word strive there in that 24th verse, is a, it's a, um, I, I looked up the, in the concordance that word. And I, the, the Greek word for that is agon, agon, agonizomia or something like that. It, but it has to do with the, the agony contained in agonizomai or something like that. But anyway. Uh, but the word itself means in the Greek is that there, there, there should be some, some even a degree of violence about the struggle to become one of his disciples. It's an intense, it's a violent struggle that we will engage in as we live our lives, as we, as we try to become sanctified uh, and to become someone who thinks like Jesus and feels like Jesus and acts like Jesus in a world that is predominantly evil. So, it's a hard thing to do. And, and certainly I think everybody who, is, who has lived it to any extent knows that it's a hard thing to do. And it's the kind of thing that, again, as, as we look at, uh, you know, these, this ongoing implications and consequences and the, the fact that we do get to the point where we, sometimes we question ourselves about how, uh, whether we are in fact saved or not. There, there are only two destinations uh, just, just like there are two gates, there are two ways, there are two destinations. One of them, of course, leads to eternal life, and the other leads to death. Revelations 20 probably gives the clearest uh, uh, pronunciation of what happens. Um, very quickly, I'll, I'll flip over there. I don't have it marked, but the 20th chapter of Revelations tells us what's going to happen to those. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. Of course the book of life is the book in which uh, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are and, are and who are saved will be. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So everything that you and I have ever done uh, are written in those books and we will stand in judgment for that. Not, not for our salvation, but for our reward. Then the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. That's, that's what happens if you are not part of the book of life, uh, my, my son often, t- <laughs> Rick, Rick, most of you know who Rick is, but Rick has, he, he, he sums it up pretty quickly. Uh, when talking about people, uh, he sometimes will just refer to them or ask the question or have a quizzical look on his face and ask about are their names in the book. And of course, what he means by that, 
uh, that's sort of a hologram or a holy, uh, holy phrase, a holy phrase that, that means, do they have their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? If you have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're good to go. If you don't have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, you've got things to be concerned about. And that's what he's talking about there. And finally, there are two gates, there are two ways, and there are two destinations. And finally, there are two crowds. The first one is composed of many people. John 3.19 And says, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So there are many more people who prefer darkness than they do to light. I was reading again this week, I was just reading old old stuff. George Gallup, who is the the guy who who established the Gallup poll and and so forth. But what he said, uh, he he wrote a little piece in 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 um, in the paper or in a paper, where he was talking about where we are in the church today. And it's, it's sort of a condemning kind of a, a, a quote. I just picked up one quote out of it, and where he says, Never before in the history of the United States has the gospel of Jesus Christ made such inroads in society while at the same time making so little difference in how people actually live. And I know I've, we've covered many times in here uh, in our Sunday school class about, uh, about how much, how similar the people of the church or the people of God are to the outside society. Statistically, we're not much different at all. And that's what Gallup, is, his point is being made there. And of course, the reality makes the point even, even more. Uh, another thing that I read this week that, that I, I wanted to read today, which sort of puts a... Uh, I think at least some sort of a, a period to this discussion. Dr. Billy Graham had just gotten through doing a, a one of his revivals in Australia. And uh, some of you have listened to Billy Graham before or have been maybe perhaps even been one of, one of his crusades. But did you know they're, they're all pretty much the same. He has a very simple message. He has a, he has a, a, an altar call. Um, of course, and his, his whole intent is to do what, what the purpose of God is, is to try and make people think like Jesus, to feel like Jesus, and to act like Jesus, uh, with the idea that, that men are sinners, and they need to change. They need to repent, and they need to change. After Billy Graham had left Australia, the, 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 the newspaper there got a letter, which they printed in the paper, and this was from an Australian gentleman, I suppose, I give him credit, but, or at least maybe he doesn't deserve it, but he, he wrote this letter. He said, after hearing Dr. Billy Graham on the air, I guess he, and, and viewing him on television, he saw, he saw the crusade on TV, and reading reports and letters concerning him and his mission, I am heartily sick of the type of religion that insists that my soul and everyone else's needs saving, whatever that means. I have never felt that I was lost nor do I feel that I daily wallow in the mire of sin, although repetitive preaching insists that I do. 
Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness and tolerance, that acknowledges no barriers of color or creed, that remembers the aged and teaches children of goodness and not sin. If in order to save my soul I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached, I prefer to remain forever damned. There is the darkness that pervades uh, certainly much of the world. And that, that, that is a manifestation of that darkness. Men prefer darkness. On the other hand, there are few. And I get Matthew uh, 24 or 22. These are the, the few. And we'll end here. Very short verse. Some of you probably already know what it is. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. For many are called, but few are chosen. And so I, I will I will close with that for today, as far as our lesson is concerned. Uh, with again uh, reiterating that it's not an easy path. It's a difficult path, uh, but. The, the, the beauty of that is, and the promise that we have, if we persevere, is that God will carry us to the end of our journey, and, and he, will, he, will, he will get us there. All that we have to do is to remain faithful to Him. Let me close. Our Father, again, we do thank You for Your Word of truth. We thank You, Father, that, that You remain faithful to us, even in our faithlessness to You. And so, Father, we ask that you would, again, um, encourage us each day through the power of your Spirit that resides within us to be all that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.